Chapter 5. Highs and Lows Lawrence clapped his hands gleefully and egged Brian on to rev the engine even harder. Up on its stand and missing its front wheel, the motorbike coughed and spluttered blowing thick black smoke. Over the last few days I'd kept a low profile, avoiding the terrible twins who'd bonded even tighter during the preparations for today, Emmy in NW3 day. Handwritten posters had been nailed on trees, posted through letterboxes, put up in shop windows and left under wiper blades in the hope of pulling in an audience. Lawrence was running around sweating profusely as he completed last-minute preparations. At the back of the garden, on a placard driven into the ground alongside two chairs, were the words, Brian's story. Beside the motorbike, another sign read, Feel ME for free. Homemade bunting had been strung everywhere, and an upturned barrel was now being loaded with bottles of booze. Happy with the results of the hectic final push, Lawrence and Brian sat down on a tartan picnic blanket and surveyed the fruits of their labour. The gate creaked open, and in walked the first visitor, Cat. Catching sight of the signage and decorative display, which was on par with work done by infants at an end-of-school nursery party, she rolled her eyes, waved around a bottle of wine she was carrying, and asked for a corkscrew. She opened the bottle, then squeezed herself onto the blanket. The four of us sat silently, avoiding each other's gaze, and waited. Brian, unable to stand the silence any longer, cracked and started to busy himself with repositioning the chairs beside his sign, first putting them closer together, then further apart, then side by side, then back to the position he found them in. Look, Brian pointed to the gate. A person! The old lady, who gingerly popped her head into the garden, was pounced on by Lawrence. He gave her a homemade t-shirt with ME in NW3, scrawled on the front of it in marker pen, poured her a drink, then led her towards Brian, who began his tale of suffering. When I was a young lad, he was starting his story from the beginning of his life, which I didn't think was necessary. I had many dreams. The old lady sipped a whiskey, enjoying the company, and listened attentively. Lawrence, eager to get the party going, went out onto the street to round up more people. He returned almost immediately, with his arm tightly around a shy bookish man. I have one. This is Gerald. He's willing to experience M.E. Lawrence was now hopping around frenetically. OK, Gerald. Brandy, vodka, whiskey or rum? Do I have? Yes, you do. It's part of the experience. Oh, I suppose a brandy then. Thank you. Lawrence poured him a large one and gestured for him to knock it back. Gerald shook his head and took a little sip. While Gerald's glass was raised to his lips, Lawrence decided to help him along and put a finger under the tumbler, raising it until the contents were gone. OK, Gerald, I'd now like you to do a few star jumps for me. Fifty, please. Is this part of the... Absolutely, let me hold your jacket. Gerald started off strongly but collapsed in a heap after eighteen. Red-faced and gasping, he attempted to leave. One more drink before you go, Lawrence insisted. No, thank you. For the sufferers of M.E. For my mother who died from it. Oh, well, good boy. Lawrence helped him down another drink, then sat him in a chair directly behind the motorbike. Cat prodded me in the back. Do something, dear. I jumped to my feet, 
but was immediately pushed back down by Lawrence, who gave me a reassuring wink and carried on. How are you feeling, Gerald? Not very well, he said in a squeaky voice. Drunk? Gerald nodded. Confused? He nodded again. Lawrence pulled a pill bottle from his trouser pocket and emptied the contents into the palm of his hand. Lawrence, darling, that's enough. He ignored Cat and continued. Take these. He held his hand out to Gerald. What are they? Tablets. What for? It's either this or another drink. Your choice. Cap held out a glass to me for a refill. At what point in a situation like this would it be a good idea to call for a police officer, dear? I told her I thought we'd passed it already. Lawrence dropped the pills into Gerald's hand, who popped them into his small mouth. He stored them squirrel-like, until Lawrence slapped him hard on the back, making him swallow them. Brian was still chatting to the old lady, and it captured her imagination, spinning a story of elaborate complexity and length. He was up to the terrible experiences he had with full stops and capital letters in primary school, when Lawrence pulled out a length of rope from under the chair and bound Gerald to it with a few swiftly tied but complicated knots. Now, Brian, now! Brian looked over, confused for a moment, then jumped into action. He leapt to stride the motorbike, kick-started the engine and revved it wildly. The smoke and fumes spewed out to Gerald's face. How does it feel? Come on, how does it feel? shouted Lawrence. I squeezed myself into the fray in an attempt to stop the abuse, which didn't go too well. Lawrence put me in a firm headlock. The old lady looked on, clapping gleefully, appreciating the show. Five plus six, five plus six, come on, what is it, Gerald? Cat was now drinking directly from the bottle. Come on, what is it? Gerald shook his head frantically, his eyes pleading for mercy. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That's what it feels like. That's what it bloody feels like every single day for these people. Cat dismissed him with a wave. It doesn't feel like that at all, darling. And could you please let go of Joe? His face is turning blue. Bloody think about that the next time someone casually mentions they have ME. Think about the pain. Think about the suffering. The confusion. Lawrence let go of my neck, did a few laps of the garden, then ran into the house. He returned with several pots of paint and started what looked like a life-size self-portrait on the front of the house. He went berserk halfway through, ripped off his shirt, sprinted out of the gate and disappeared down the street, laughing manically. Brian, shouting after him, followed closely behind. The old lady eventually picked up on the peculiar situation and shuffled away, while Gerald, who I had just untied, pelted off like a whippet out of a trap. The police car screeched to a halt. In the back seat, face pushed against the glass, sat a tearful Gerald. He pointed to me and Cat, who was still wandering around the garden in a daze. An officer leapt out of the vehicle and was nose to nose with me within seconds. There's been a report of a serious physical abuse at this address. That man, he pointed to Gerald, was forcefully made to ingest some kind of drug by a middle-aged male over six foot tall, bald with a limp. We need to know what drug it was immediately. We're on a timeline here, sir. Do you know the whereabouts of the man described? Gerald leapt out of the car and raced into the garden. The officer brought him to his knees right in front of me, pulling his arm halfway up his back to restrain him. Retaliation isn't the answer, son. Toilet. I need the toilet, pleaded Gerald. Cat helped him to his feet and led him into the house. 
While the officers searched the garden for clues, I explained that the absent Lawrence had been on a manic high and any abuse was, of course, unintentional. The officer picked up a discarded pill bottle from under the motorbike and scanned the label. Easy, Lax. That's a... This is fucked up, sir, pardon the language. If you see the suspect, get him to an hospital or police station, whichever is closest. Gerald came out of the house clutching his stomach, looking weak and embarrassed. He accepted the officer's offer of a lift home and was driven away at speed. Moments later, Brian dripped his way up the path. He's on the eve. He's in the pond. Children are crying. The shallow duck pond was a favourite with nannies, young mothers and grandparents. It was a place where children learnt the word duck and were now learning other things. Lawrence stood in the centre of the pond, holding aloft bags of bread he'd taken from the hands of children and began talking to them on behalf of the birds. You're going to jail for years. Bloody murderers. Because of you, these birds will be too fat to fly. They'll be eaten by foxes, ripped apart, quack, quack, quacking to the bloody end. Ducklings will suffer malnutrition. Pollution will stagnate the water and kill the fish. Disease will spread because of you feeding them this. He shook the bags of stale bread at the trembling children. Murderers. There were please do not feed the duck signs everywhere. But a half-naked maniac shouting at children easily trumped the feeding offence. The parks police marched Lawrence out of the pond. Eventually, I persuaded them to hand him over, telling them a fellow officer had given me strict instructions to get him to a hospital immediately. I held on to one of Lawrence's arms, Brian the other, and we slowly walked him towards the Royal Free Hospital, where he was taken into care. He waved his goodbye, content and manically happy. In his mind, he'd saved lives today, only of the feathered kind, but nonetheless, a small victory for humanity had been achieved. On the way back to the house, Brian put his hand on my shoulder, pulling me to a halt. Joe, do you ever feel like you did before you got ill? I wish to God I did. I dreamt about feeling better. Dreams were, I'm running through fields, across streams, up mountains. I'm smiling and I'm laughing and I'm running and everyone around me is trying to keep up but can't. No, was my short reply. Because I do. I'm not 100% sure, but I think I do. Yesterday, I felt knackered after hanging out with Lawrence all day, but he was an eye, wasn't he? Anyone would be knackered trying to keep up with him, wouldn't they? And today, my muscles feel fine. No headaches, no brain fog, no fatigue, no flu symptoms. To be honest, I think I could do some work. Real work, not just gardening. And today's been hectic as well, ain't it? And I feel fine. It can go, Joe, can't it? People get over it. Saul up here, mate. He tapped the side of his head. You can fight it with this. I know you can. He walked on ahead of me, light on his feet, arms swinging, relaxed, carefree. I watched jealously as he bounced into the distance. I turned the corner onto Keats Grove, feeling bitter and brittle. The sight of the trash garden and the sagging bunting brought me down even further. Cat was nowhere to be seen. I let myself into the house and found a note secured to the kitchen table with a carving knife. Getting out of town. Can you drive? Cat. I knocked on Brian's door. He didn't answer. I knew he was in there, 
I could hear him snoring. I opened the door to a room littered with empty beer bottles. I woke him up and told him I was going away for a few days. He groaned and covered his head with a pillow. It looked like his recovery was over. The roof of Cat's eight-year-old Saab convertible had been torn off by youths a few months ago in order to steal the radio. The car itself ran fine, but the bodywork was terrible. Dents and scratches on every corner, bonnet and boot. The wing mirrors were missing and the passenger door handle looked as if it had been torn off in a collision. Wrapped in a parka, hair blowing in the wind, Cat pointed the way. Darling, let me know if you'd like me to take over, although I prefer not to. I don't have the concentration anymore. There's several motorists pursuing insurance claims against me, actually. Have you ever been to Suffolk, dear? I shook my head, keeping my eyes firmly on the road. I, too, found driving a challenge. The attention and focus I needed to make split-second decisions and translate them into minute pedal and steering wheel adjustments wasn't like it once was. Cat put the ready roll spliff in her mouth, complained briefly about my drug contact's habit of storing merchandise down his pants, lit up and reclined a seat. It'll be a nice little break, a few days in the countryside, do us both the world of good. She let out the smoke with a giggle, then waved the spliff in the air. He hated it, me smoking these. Thought it was highly illegal. It wasn't my first choice, dear. No, not even my sodden second. But you panic, don't you, sweetheart? Well, you do if you're a woman. I wanted children. He asked me to marry him. I said yes. Didn't know he had no intentions of having children until after the ceremony. Anyway, sort of late now, dear, isn't it? Everything's too sodding late now. Cat found it hard to remain positive for long. Her impulsive nature, reined in constantly by fatigue, flipped her between hope and despair. Her thoughts about the future were especially negative. With age having a natural slowing process on the body, she didn't want to consider how that, together with ME, would affect her in later years. The negative prognosis, however, would have to be accepted. Accepting the unacceptable was part of our daily work, a constant exhausting battle fought in messy skirmishes, won on some days, lost on others. Cat giggled. She held onto my wrist to steady herself from what was now a violent bout of laughter as the tiredness can kill road sign flashed past. The trip out of town was having rejuvenating effects already. We're heading for Framlingham, dear. Wake me when we get there. She handed me a scribbled note with directions, tossed a spliff out of the window, pulled up a parker hood, and nestled down. I dawdled along making sure not to miss any road signs. Three hours later, I gave Kat a nudge. She held onto the dashboard, focusing on the road ahead, and guided me down narrow, overgreen lanes towards Bramble Barn, a twee cottage painted pink, topped off with a new thatched roof. Kat opened the metal cow gate and waved me into the driveway, then walked up to the door and tried the key in the lock. Fuck, fuck, fucker! In a rage, she picked up a concrete duck sitting on the side of a small water fountain and threw it through the glass door panel. Darling, this is where the bastard spends his weekends, curled up in front of the Arga with that dumb 25-year-old bitch. She put her arm through the broken window, released the latch and let herself into a house I wasn't quite sure she should be letting herself into. After an initial tirade through the property, 
She calmed down and wandered melancholically from room to room. She took a picture from the wall in the hallway and handed it to me. Look, that's him, dipstick. It was her ex. She quickly grabbed the picture back, threw it on the floor, shattering the glass and stormed off again. I followed her, trying to make good her bursts of destruction, until she ran out of steam and collapsed on the Afghan rug in the middle of the living room. Being abandoned. Not nice, darling. If you're the one doing the abandoning, then fine, whoopee. Leave your baggage, move on. Change the locks and give your new tarty girlfriend a titch up for Christmas. She took a swig from a bottle of champagne she'd found in the fridge. I bet he's even let all the roses perish. She opened the back door onto the garden and set off the burglar alarm. Look, shriveled, all of them. Arsehole. I persuaded Cat it was time for us to leave. She did a quick search of the house, looking for a few items she hadn't managed to get out in the initial split. An antique corkscrew, a silver Dunhill lighter the size of a brick, and a book. Cat wrestled the keys out of my hand, jumped into the car, crunched gears, and bunny hopped through the gate out onto the open road. He's a fucking jerk, small dick fuckface. Is anyone following us, dear? Because I don't have time to do time, darling. It's running out. We broke free of the dangerous country lanes onto a B-road. Give me a cigarette for Christ's sake, asked Cat. I lit one with the Dunhill brick and handed it over. Where's the book, dear? I lifted it off my lap and waved it at her. Weathering Heights, miserable novel apart from the fact it's a first edition. I popped it in the glove box out of harm's way. Cat accelerated, shifting into angst mode again. Why can't we have a good old illness like they had? Cat nodded towards where the book was now stowed. Consumption, bit of a chill than bad cough followed by death. Jesus Christ, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. Not even him. All that unpredictable pain. Avoiding all the good things in life because they're bad. Hiding away like a squirrel and tiptoeing fearfully into the world when a tiny window of opportunity allows. All the while making sure you don't get too excited about it, dear, because if you do, you're fucked again. It's medieval torture. Where's the help? Where's the understanding? It's a quack's paradise. Hey, look over there. See those incredibly ill people with an illness nobody has a clue about? Why don't we take all their money, let them die not just in pain, but in absolute fucking poverty as well? And here's another tip for you. If you're married to one of them, just leave them so they can suffer alone. Fuck, fuck, fucker. Cat pummeled the dashboard for half a mile, then pulled over into a lay-by and flopped forward. I helped her onto the back seat where she slipped into the footwell and slept. The adrenaline from the excitement of breaking and entering had worn off, leaving me exhausted. I caught sight of a road sign with wavy lines on it denoting the sea and headed for it. Twenty minutes later, I approached Warbleswick. I could smell the salt in the air. A new land would soon be ending. The road narrowed and weaved, revealing quaint shops selling sailors' caps and seashells. I found a parking space on the seafront, left Cat sleeping in the car, and headed down to the beach. I pulled off my shoes and socks and paddled in the water. For some reason, I wasn't sure why, I was crying. It might have been the brief unwanted thought of swimming out to the horizon, ending it all heroically. Or the memories of constant parental battles at Cleethorpes in the summer holidays when I was a child. Or maybe it was just happiness. The sun glinting on hypnotic waves pushed away what remained of the clutter of London, leaving behind a vulnerable, carefree nothingness. Stick it up your ass, sweetheart. 
I turned to see Cat, glaring at a parking attendant. I wiped the tears from my eyes and rushed over. I apologised to the attendant, fed some coins into the meter and pulled Cat towards the sea. It had the same effect on her as it had on me. She sat on the sand and turned her face up towards the sun. Her body settled into stillness, her mouth relaxed and turned upwards into a smile. She opened her eyes and caught me scrutinising her. Unable to control the moment, I puckered my lips. Kiss me and I will smack you in the face, dear. I unpuckered rapidly. Don't take it personally. I told it I didn't. The combination of sun and sea, if not experienced for several years, can obviously do strange things to you. I was determined not to leave it another six years until my next paddle. That's enough, Cat announced. Stay any longer and I'll turn into a beetroot. She got to her feet and headed for town, turning briefly to blow me a kiss. The lapping of the waves eased me into a feeling of rare felt wellness. I lay spread-eagled on the sand, toying with the idea of recovery. My breathing slowed and shallowed. The sun rays penetrated my closed eyes. Blood-red lava dripped. Above me appeared a huge baroque gold-gilt mirror. The glass shimmered and twisted and turned to mercury. A woman's hand pushed through the silver liquid, stroked my face, then pulled me into a huge diamond-encrusted cave. I lay on a sumptuous sheepskin rug. Next to me is the singer and actress Cher. She's dressed in tight leather underwear and wearing a trilby. I bet you're thinking this is strange, aren't you? She said, and then fed me grapes which tasted like nectar. I found this odd because normally I hate grapes. I had me. You do know that, don't you, darling? I opened my mouth to answer, but it was immediately stuffed with more grapes. Tell me, Joe. How's it going? I took the grapes from her and started popping them into her mouth. Each time she received one, she clapped her hands like a seal. It's been bad, Cher, I tell her. Jesus. The last five years have been bad. The initial onset, the confused diagnosis, the unhelpful help, the psychological stress, the constant pain, the hundreds of hours languishing in bed with nothing to do but stare at a wall. To be honest, Cher... It's been a fucking nightmare. Her face is now wet with tears. She says something, but I can't make it out. Cher starts taking long steps backwards. She holds up the last of the few grapes that hang from a single stalk. I shake my head and tap my stomach. I'm full, Cher, I tell her. She closes her eyes and blows softly in my direction. My skin feels the breeze. The hairs on my arms rise. I hear the sea again and wake up. That was a strange one. I don't even like Cher. I grabbed my jacket from the car and headed into the now bustling streets, full of people enjoying an afternoon stroll. Up ahead, on the other side of the road, a small group had gathered, looking down at something. I crossed over and pushed my inquisitive head into the huddle. A semi-conscious cat, gripping a half-empty vodka bottle, held her arms out to me like a baby. I knelt down on one knee. Not the time or place, darling, slurred Cat. I gestured for her to crawl onto my back. She climbed on board, holding me around the neck with both arms while shouting at the bystanders, Nothing to see here, nothing to see. 
which was a lie. I managed a few steps, then decided it would be a far better idea to leave Cat on the pavement and get the car. When I returned, Cat's complexion had changed from a pale white to a pale green. She crawled into the passenger seat, pointed a thin finger at the windscreen and groaned the monosyllabic order, Home. A second after pulling away, Cat waved her hands around frantically, hung her head out of the window and was violently ill. I parked up and waited for the heaving to subside. Under cover of darkness, Warbleswick disappeared from my rearview mirror. I was hoping that a car without a roof, plus the harsh wind licking my face, would keep me alert. It did for a while. Luckily, the rumble strip woke me just in time to steer away from the armco barrier. I stopped at the next service station, still shaking from the near miss. Cat cleaned herself up and joined me in the cafe. The harsh lighting made her look so unwell that the slow dribble of customers sat as far away from us as possible. She drank coffee through a straw and ate small pieces of cake which she robotically lifted to her mouth. Cat wasn't capable of driving and I could barely keep my eyes open so we found a quiet corner in the children's soft play area and slept for a few hours until prodded awake by a cleaner at three in the morning. An hour and a half later, I pulled up outside Cat's flat. The first couple of gentle taps didn't wake her. Neither did a harder shake. Her head was bent forward at an uncomfortable angle. I lifted it up to the headrest before shaking her again. This time she stirred, raising her hands to her temples, her eyes clamped shut, her face ashen. Hospital. That single word, delivered with urgency, was repeated a moment later, with the grave self-knowledge that something was terribly wrong. The five-hour wait at the A&E came to an abrupt end when Cat fell off her chair. The blood gushing from a cut just above her eyebrow got the attention of the staff who lifted her onto a gurney and wheeled her down a long corridor into the bowels of the building. The boat creaked, rocking from side to side. Seagulls squawked. The rocking became vigorous and violent. Wakey, wakey, mate. Brian stood over me, tapping his watch. You've been asleep for a day and a half. Best get up. You don't want to mess up your cicardia ribbon, do you? Come on, son. There's a cup of tea waiting downstairs for you. Brian had made breakfast. The table was littered with jams and cereals, spoons and bowls, milks and yogurts. Joe. Try the soy milk. I find I don't have any issues with my stomach if I use that. He poured me a cup of tea and stood away from the table to knock the fine grey dust from his clothes and hair. Been doing a bit of plastering. Thought I'd tidy the place up a bit. Be nice for Lawrence when he gets back. I'm cracking on with it actually. Should have most of the downstairs done by the end of the day. I ain't working as fast as I used to but not far off. Shoulders a bit stiff but it's only to be expected innit. He pulled up a chair. Remember when you came into my room a couple of days ago? I told him I did. I had a hangover, right? I told him that's what it looked like. Well, mate, the night before, I carried out a bit of an experiment, risky or no, but it was something I had to do. I drank what I would normally drink before I got ill. Five pints of lager and half a dozen shots. After a session like that, I'd normally recover around midday. He edged his chair closer. Guess how I felt after midday, Joe? Shit, I suggested. No, mate, no, no. I felt bloody brilliant. I've done it. I've recovered. 
It's frigging brilliant, Joe. He bear-hugged me, then disappeared into the hallway, where he started whistling as he plastered. A few minutes later, he popped back into the kitchen and tossed me my jacket. Answer your phone, mate. It's been ringing all morning. Drive me around the bend. The person on the other end of the phone asked if I was next of kin. I peered through the observation window into Kat's private room, where she lay motionless. Her body pushed beyond its limits now allowed only one function, to send pain to all receptors as a violent reminder of misuse. I tiptoed into the room, sat on the edge of a bed and held her hand. She opened her eyes, cleared her throat and spoke in a whisper. Joe, find out how much my flat's worth. My daily visits to Cat I kept short. The main topic of our brief conversations concerned her decision to buy a property outside of London. She'd settled on Suffolk. A large place, a barn. Yes, a converted barn, that would be wonderful. Some have outbuildings that can be turned into holiday cottages. Look for something like that, dear. Don't rush. Find the right place. You're in charge of it all, Joe. You can do it. I know you can. She'd been in hospital for two weeks and had shown little sign of improvement. Enough room for about ten people. I'd like you to have a courtyard. A place where people can be together. Maybe a fountain in the middle. The sound of water is relaxing, isn't it, Joe? Wouldn't it be wonderful to fall asleep to the sound of water? I won't be there, though, darling. You do understand that, don't you? Brian's apparent recovery, as unfathomable as the illness itself, was beginning to annoy me. His excess energy, constant chatter, and need for only seven hours sleep left me with little brine-free time. He'd started taking his kids to school in the morning. He'd even had a meal in a restaurant with his wife to talk things through. In between all this, he'd completed the major patch-up work inside the house and was considering rendering the outside of the building. Just being around him, a whirlwind of vitality exhausted me. His new love of Tai Chi was especially grating. The 37 short-form moves in the hands of a seasoned veteran could look like poetry itself. Brian's self-taught style looked like he was trying to swat a fly. Every morning he stood in the front garden with the newly released Lawrence and together they flapped themselves to health and happiness. Lawrence's stay at the Royal Free had been a brief one. He was quickly rebalanced and given strict instructions to adhere to his medication, which Brian was helping him out with. On the kitchen table sat a large wooden fruit bowl. In the mornings, Brian would place four pieces of fruit in it, one to be taken with each of Lawrence's four daily tablets. At the end of the day, if there was any fruit left in the bowl, it would be obvious to all that a dose had been missed. The system's ease of abuse was highlighted when Brian's explanation of his scheme was absent-mindedly accompanied by him removing, peeling and eating a banana. The ward nurses had no idea how Cat got out of bed or out of the building. Several witnesses told the same story. A ghost-like female vagrant had walked purposefully into the road, giving the driver no chance. The first responder noticed a flicker of life and raced into action. The doctor standing at Cat's bedside shook my hand and left. He didn't say anything. 
He didn't need to. Cat spoke in a whispered, cracked voice, hallucinating from the morphine. Funny man. Wears a beret. Woman. Lots of hair. Film director. Beard. There's hundreds of them, Joe. Thousands of them. Famous people, normal people, young people, little boys and girls, and soldiers. Lots of soldiers. They're all here, Joe. Look. Her glassy eyes gazed into the distance. Look, Joe. She lifted her arm and waved to her friends in suffering. She died later that night. Her dream to open a communal care home for sufferers at the thick end of the illness would never be realised. The flat left to her by her ex-husband was to fund the project. However, there was an unread caveat in the deeds that stated it was hers only until death. It would then revert to its rightful owner if he was still alive, which he was. At the ceremony, I could see him standing behind a tree, happy to be on the periphery of her death as he had been in her life. Attached to him, limpet-like, was a chesty blonde of whom Cat had once said an arger was completely wasted on. While arranging the funeral, Brian Lawrence and I toyed with the idea of buying a dove to be released into the air as a metaphysical symbol of the freeing of the spirit, but it was too expensive. With the help of a fishing net, Lawrence ensnared a low-budget alternative. At the end of the sermon, the shoebox lid was removed and a disoriented pigeon flopped out onto the grass, rolled over a couple of times, regained its balance, then waddled into an open grave. A few moments later, it rose gloriously, soaring towards the sun, then lost its bearings again, zigzagging. The dishevelled pigeon, with its compass faltering, wasn't the most beautiful creature I'd ever seen, but it was far more fitting than a pure white symbol of elegance and peace. Lawrence stood on top of an upturned milk crate, medicated and in complete control of his twice-weekly speech. Surrounded by half a dozen interested listeners, he pointed up at the Royal Free Hospital behind him and continued, And it was here in 1955 that one of the many worldwide outbreaks took place. It was where two jokers, Dr William Beard and Colin McEverdy, a psychiatrist and student psychiatrist, took it upon themselves to dismiss the outbreak as hysteria, without examining a single patient or talking to anyone who had. Their findings were unbloody believably printed in the British Medical Journal, and in 1970, the findings were printed in Time magazine, ridiculing the illness worldwide. At this point, Lawrence opened his mouth, feigning incredulity with the hope of it spreading. One woman gasped, Do not fret, young lady, because in 1985 a knight in shining armour arrived, better late than never, I suppose, and this knight in question, an inquisitive professor, took muscle biopsies from the original patients of the outbreak. All of them still suffered overwhelming fatigue and many other non-specific complaints. Now, the biopsies revealed something significant. They all had abnormalities in the function of mitochondria, organs dealing with the energy production in every cell of the body. If they don't work properly, then the energy supply to every cell in the body is impaired. This proves categorically that ME is not in your head. Although MRI scans of the brains of ME patients revealing irreversible punctuate lesions prove that it is in your head, if you know what I mean.
And so the confusion goes on and the search for a cure continues, a cure that you can all have a hand in by dipping those hands into your pockets and contributing to the vastly bloody underfunded research that in many ways, he pointed again to the hospital behind him, began here. Sitting next to me in the passenger seat of the Saab was my old drug dealing neighbour, Dwayne. He chortled to himself as we left behind another satisfied customer. He chortled again when Judas, sitting on the back seat, licked the nape of my neck before moving over to an ear, drowning it in saliva. My new part-time job was, I suppose, slightly criminal. But how was a man like me supposed to earn a living? Ill and unreliable, a forced member of the underclass, benefits removed and cast out of society like, well, like a criminal. I'd even been refused the selfless right to help my fellow man in times of need by giving blood. The official reason? To protect my health. The real reason? To protect everyone else's. A rumoured retrovirus could possibly be waiting in the wings, ready to wreak havoc via a transfusion. Dwayne took the book out of the glove compartment and picked up from where he left off. He licked the end of his finger and turned a page. This Heathcliff's a bit of a tosser, bro. Some things you just gotta learn to live with, you know what I'm saying? Yes, Dwayne, I replied. I know exactly what you're saying. Dwayne's phone alerted him to a text message. He read it out. Small bag of weed, 25 Mornington Crescent. I put my foot down. Judas hung his head out of the window. The future held possibilities.